Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3. It's been a challenging week for our community. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a shooting up just north of Detroit, south of Flint, and it has changed our state. And even our own community, several of your own kids and grandkids had school canceled for several days due to threats made against their schools. Uh, it's changed the way we think. Some kids are now scared to go. Parents are worried and we see society continue to degrade in front of our eyes. So how should we respond? How should Christians respond to the situation? Well, as we've looked at the first chapters of Romans, we've seen the challenges of today contained in those chapters. In chapter 1, we looked at the wrath of God against a society. It's interesting, the chapter ends with this. In chapter 1, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And it, even this week, it feels like a prediction of today, those few verses. In chapter 2, we discovered that acts of righteousness, acts of religion, cannot save or change society. It's incapable. And then in chapter 3... The section we looked at last week, the picture becomes more dire. No one does good. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. All people are totally depraved. So what are we to do? How are we to respond? Simply resign ourselves to the fact that depravity will continue without stop. And it's just... The world we live in, just kind of deny it. Do we just decide we're going to live in a world in which our kids are scared to go to school? How can we see change happen? Well, after weeks of bad news, as we've worked through the first few chapters today, we get to turn to the good news. And now the good news. Yes, man is totally depraved. Man is hopelessly wicked. But there's good news. Let's look at verses 21 through 31 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcision by uh, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here in this section, we have the good news. Salvation, righteousness is possible. Man can change. Society can change. We see this through the gospel. Three important principles. The first principle that we see that provides hope that we can change and man can change is actually a negative principle. And that is man cannot earn his salvation. Or we might say man cannot change himself or change society. It says in verse 21, now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. We see that all fall short through sin. And in one quick summary, Paul summarizes what we've looked at through the first three chapters. Verse 23 reminds us of the message of the last sections. All have sinned. All are totally depraved. The last section ended with verse 20. For by the works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We have to ask the question, what is this sin that Jesus, that Paul is talking about? What is sin? All have sinned. That word actually in the first century was an archery term. And it was the idea of of shooting the arrow and missing the target missing the mark. When you did that, it was called a sin to miss the mark. And so what Paul is saying is that everyone has missed God's mark. What is God's mark? God's mark is to be perfectly holy and and perfect like him. All people miss that mark. He summarizes what we saw last week, that none do good, none is righteous, none understand, none seek for God. Instead, all of us Fall up short. We fall short of the glory of God. We miss it. We fail to reach it. We lack God's glory. It's also used, some will appreciate this, of those who were late and missed the event. They just ran late all the time and always missed. That's what it means. We're missing. We're late to the party. We can't get in. We can't achieve God's perfection. Man can't correct things. We're broken. We are depraved. But verse 21 begins again with some of the most important words in the Bible. But now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe the righteousness of God is revealed through faith. These two words, but now mark the shift of Paul's focus up to now. He's been focusing on man's problem. 
convicting us of sin through the law, helping us recognize we are broken. We have a problem, not just society, but I have a problem. But now he's shifting to the good news. There is help back in the first chapter. Paul mentioned righteousness in verse 16 in verse 17, but then in verse 18, he started in on condemnation and sin and God's wrath. And, and he, and we didn't see God's righteousness again until now. And once again, he establishes that all are lost, but now he can give the good news. God's righteousness is available. Change can happen. He says, now the righteousness of God is manifested. It's, it's made clear. It was cloudy. We can't see it, but now it's crystal clear. Now this statement, when we read it, it might be a little shocking, but it would have been incredibly shocking to those who first read this text. See, the shocking thing here is that the Jews believed that there was no righteousness available apart from obeying the law. And here Paul says, no, God's righteousness is revealed apart from the law. See, Paul is arguing that the saving righteousness of God cannot be obtained by keeping a law. From a human standpoint, we're all legalists. We all like to have our what can we do things. This is much of modern religion is is covered in this where we do acts. We do things to try and earn God's favor. But Paul says there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Rather, it is only through faith. What was this radical plan to reveal God's righteousness that we can receive through faith. The radical plan was this, that Christ would purchase salvation. Verses 24 through 26 are perhaps some of the richest verses in all of scripture. In these verses, Paul packs in all of the theological and rich ramifications of Christ. It's really what we celebrate at Christmas he says in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood in uh, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's three important aspects to this plan of Christ purchasing salvation. First, we see the substitutionary work of Christ. This plan involved God substituting for you, taking your place. We see this in several phrases. He says, first off, we are justified by his grace. That word justified, it is a, a court word, a forensic word, which means to declare someone right. It doesn't mean that you came to God clean and he said, yes, you're clean. It means you, it means you came to God dirty and God said, by my decree, you're clean. Wherein God declares us to be right. But we need to note that this justification 
being declared right, sinless before God, is not by some action that we do, but is wholly by God's grace. What is grace? It is God giving us those blessings we don't deserve. It's not something we can earn. He says it's a gift. Especially growing up, we loved Christmas. You run downstairs or run into the room and see the tree. And under the tree were all the presents. And on Christmas morning, you open the present. And there you see that gift that you so desperately were hoping for that was given to you. And so you looked at your mom and dad and said, I am so thankful that you got me this present. Here is the money to pay for it. Your parents would look at you and say, I don't think you quite understand how this works. This is a gift. You don't you don't pay me for it. I just give it to you. But so often we act this way with God. And I'm so thankful for the gift that you have given me in Christ. Now let me earn it. And he says, this is not how it works. You're justified. Declare righteous by grace. As a gift. Grace is God's loving. God's stooping. God coming to the rescue for man. Through this, God justifies the ungodly. Not the well-intentioned. Not those who are trying to earn his favor. Those who recognize, I can do nothing. And what makes the good news news is that no one could have or even would have come up with this plan that said you can't do anything. God does everything. We want to earn God's favor. But God will only give. God's way of providing righteousness has nothing to do with human performance. It is apart from the law. And one of fallen humanity's most difficult tasks is to accept righteousness as a gift. You don't do anything. You're justified by grace. You're justified through the redemption of Christ. This is the second aspect of God's substitutionary work. Through the redemption of Christ. Now, that word redemption is an interesting word. It, it means to release or, or the deliverance of a payment of a price. To, to buy something back. In the first century, and prior to that, it was liberation through the payment of a price. It referred to the ransom of prisoners of war or slaves and condemned criminals. It was the idea of, of going into the slave auction and buying back your family member out of slavery or ransoming that prisoner of war and paying that, that other nation the funds they, they desire in order to get that person back. And so what he's saying is that Jesus, through his payment, bought us back. He paid the ransom for your soul. As we look at verse 24 as a whole, it, it's clear that God's act of, of ransoming and justifying is not arbitrary. There's a cost to pay. Ransom had to be paid. 
And, and our acquittal, our, our righteousness depends on that ransom being paid. God's sentence is based on it and comes to effect through it and can't be pronounced already in the now in favor of all who believe by virtue of it. In other words, this is something that, that God has done all of him. We're reminded in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. You were purchased. Your price has been paid to take you from slavery to sin, to buy you back. But the price was not good works. The price was not funds. The price was not popularity. The price was Christ and his blood. Now we need to ask, to whom was this ransom paid? Some might say this ransom was paid to to Satan, but a more biblical answer, one that's implied in verse 25, would be that this ransom was paid to God himself. The judge who would render the verdict is the recipient of that ransom. This, we'll see, allows God to be both just and the justifier, both the judge and the defense lawyer. It's amazing that God would choose to redeem us through the ransom of Christ. Further, we see that it is by propitiation by Christ's blood. Now, there's a word that we don't use. Propitiation. Might even say, I've never heard that word before, and that would be fine. But it is an incredibly rich word, propitiation. It is a word which means that which expiates or that which turns away anger. It was used of the appeasement of the wrath of a God. Now you might recall. If you have done any study on the Roman and Greek gods, they were capricious and angry people. Those gods were not kind and loving gods. And so Roman and Greek life, much of time was spent trying to appease the gods, offering sacrifices to turn away their anger from me. But we must also recognize that our own God is a God of wrath. We saw this in chapter one. We're reminded of Hebrews where we're told that our God is a consuming fire. God is just against sin and God hates it and turns his wrath against it. And so a payment had to be made to turn away God's wrath. And this payment was Christ. A payment justified or satisfied the demands of God's wrath. We think of the Day of Atonement ritual, what Paul certainly had in mind here. And in that day, the priest would, by action, lay the sins of the people on the head of the sacrificial goats. We see this in Leviticus 16, which would then... Picture the removal of the sin from the camp as they drove that goat out into the wilderness. And it was the payment for sin. 
Well, that seems to be simply an alternative way of describing a more normal, what a more normal sin offering achieved. But it didn't actually forgive sin. We're reminded in Hebrews 10 of this. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. God's wrath had to be appeased. But we couldn't do it. We were the reason for God's wrath. It took a perfect sacrifice. The only one who could offer that is God himself. To pay the price for his own wrath. You see, the sins are covered and offered as a gift, not because they are corrected through our action and our work, but because they are corrected through the perfect work of Christ. There is nothing we could add to it. And this demonstrates God's righteousness. He continues on. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins at the end of verse 25 through this plan, through this salvation. God demonstrates his righteousness, his absolute perfection, his right way of dealing with everything. It is a plan no one could have come up with that only makes God look great. And through it, we see God's righteousness and he makes people righteous. Second Corinthians 521. He made him to become sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, demonstrated God's righteousness by taking our sin on himself. He became our sin, although he knew no sin and had the full bearing of God's wrath poured on him. As you read of the crucifixion of Christ and the events that surrounded it, you see the outpouring of God's wrath. And all of this. So that you and I would be made God's righteousness. So that although we are totally depraved through faith, we can stand before God and hear him say, perfect. This only reveals God's intense glory. There's nothing about it. This is why we struggle with it sometimes. There's nothing about it that makes me look good. It all makes God look good. And through it, God becomes both just and justifier. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what this means. If God did not punish sin, we talked about this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. If God does not punish sin and pour out his wrath on sin, then God is not a good judge. 
If we have someone come into court and and they have murdered people and it is very clear they were caught in the act and they stand before the judge and the judge looks at them with all the weight of evidence against them and says, you seem like a nice person, so um, not guilty. We would not classify that judge as a good judge. In fact, we would say that was not just at all. That was injustice. But God is not unjust. He is perfectly just, which means he cannot look at sin and say, well, I mean, you seem like a nice person. So come on in. It's all good. That's unjust, unjust. He had to be just. He has to address and pour out the full bearing of punishment and wrath on sin. But God in his amazing sovereignty, is not only just, he becomes the justifier. He takes that full wrath. And the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, steps in our place and says, I will take their punishment. It's as though you are in court for those murders and the judge is ready to condemn you with the, with the sentence. And at that moment, Christ steps in and says, I'll take the punishment. They're free. Through this action, he remains just in punishing sin, but he also justifies us and allows us to be declared righteous. But here's the important thing about all of this section. There's no such thing as cheap grace. Look what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says the gospel is not simply an announcement of pardon, In justification, God does not merely decide unilaterally to forgive uh, us our sins. That is the prevailing idea. What happens in the gospel is that God freely forgives us of sin, not because he's just such a loving, dear, wonderful God, and it doesn't disturb him that we violate everything that is holy. No, God never negotiates his righteousness. He will never lay aside his holiness to save us. God demands and requires that sin be punished. That is why the cross is the universal symbol of Christianity. Christ had to die. Because according to God, the propitiation, the payment price had to be made. Sin had to be punished. Our sin had to be punished. And Jesus Christ willingly took that on himself. But this this salvation, this righteousness, this justification, this correctness, being corrected from all that is wrong, doesn't just happen. And it's not just given to anybody. And you can't earn it. You can't work for it. No good things you do can have this placed on your account. So this raises the important question. How can that become a reality in my life? I'm broken. And the world is broken. I want to see it fixed. And I want to be fixed. And I want to be right. How? Well, he answers this in verses 27 through 31 by saying, Faith receives salvation. When you study a text of scripture, it's important that you ask good questions. And one of the questions that's important to ask is what words, are there any words in the text that are repeated? 
And as we look at verses 27 through 31, you will see a word repeated over and over and over and over. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? The law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You'll notice that word faith over and over and over and the word law over and over. And what he's doing is he is he is juxtaposing two things. First, he is showing that works cannot earn salvation. The law following your checklist of God's stuff doesn't mean you're a believer. In fact, we find in Matthew chapter seven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out devils and your name do many wonderful works? And then I will confess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Here are these people who have done all kinds of God stuff. They've spoken the word. They've cast out devils. They've done amazing works of righteousness. And God's response to them is, nope, I don't know you. That didn't earn salvation. And Paul reemphasizes this in verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. He says this, the law of works, the law of following your checklist doesn't make you righteous. Again, this was scandalous to the Jews. They believed that if they followed the law and they did all those things that God had prescribed, that they were good. And then came Jesus, told them over and over, that's not the case. And today we try to earn this. We think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. If you've ever asked people to share the gospel with them, If you died today and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Without question, the number one answer you get is, well, I'm a a pretty good person. Well, I'm a good, I'm a good person. And we think that because of our goodness, we think that because of our morality, we think that because we do God's stuff, we're good. But works can't earn it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us it's not uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that it is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works. So that no one may boast. Titus 3, 5 tells us he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. If you are relying on the reality or the fact that you go to church, that you believe God exists, that you do good things and and you're a pretty good person, you might just be one of those people in Matthew 7 that God looks at and says, I never knew you. You see, all your God stuff you do does not make you right with God. So said often in this study, you can, you can come to church nine months before you're born. 
You can be baptized so many times, you know, every fish by its first name. You can say all the ditties you want, but that's not what brings salvation. It's not by your works. And I am concerned in American Christianity today that churches are filled with people who are like Matthew 7 people who believe that they're good. But one day they're going to stand before God and God's going to say, I don't know you. Because it's not about your religiosity. It's not what it's about. What's it about? We see, secondly, faith receives salvation. We see, or he says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He says in verse 30, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And the, rep, the, the fact that this repetition is, is involved is Rendering clear what he's trying to say. He's saying clearly, faith receives salvation. What is faith? Faith is absolute trust and assurance and rest in what God says. Hebrews 11 tells us it is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is the absolute confidence and belief and rest that what God says is true and I will act on it and live it out. James tells us that this faith does result in our works and our actions, but the works are a result of it, not a payment for it. It is absolute trust in God. We see that it is giving God your entire life. This is faith. You can't earn it. Simply coming to God and saying, God, I can't. I can't save myself. I am a broken mess. I have fallen short of your glory. But God, you did. You paid the price. And so I'm resting in that. Here I am. That's faith. We see illustrations of faith all through our life. We think of, I've shared the illustration when my boys were little, I'd put them up on high things and I'd tell them to jump. And they practiced faith when they actually finally jumped and trusted I'd catch them. Sometimes we use the illustration of a chair. Faith is that I'll sit in the chair and it will hold me. And that is perhaps an illustration of faith. But I think as we think of biblical faith, it's the fact of looking at a chair that's missing a leg and being told it will hold you and still sitting in it, believing it'll hold you. Doesn't make sense, but I trust it because the one who said it is true. That's faith. Have you come to God in faith? Have you had a point in your life where you came to Jesus Christ and you said, I am broken. I can't do it. I can't earn it, but you did. And so here I am. Fix me. My life is yours. Because if you haven't had that point, if you have not come to God in faith, it does not matter how many times you're here. It doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized. It doesn't matter how good you are. You're broken. And the best news of all is that this salvation is open 
to all people. He says in verse 29, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Here Paul uses the argument of the oneness of God as the argument that he's the God of all people. God does not divide himself up and he's this God to these people and this God to these people. He's one and so he's the God of all people. And this means that it is open to all people. It's not just open to religious people. Salvation is not just open to good people. Salvation is open to all people. This is why this is the answer to society's This is why this is the answer to see a broken society mended is because no one is so lost that they cannot be found. No one is so broken that God cannot fix them. No one has so much sin that God cannot forgive. And so even in our own society, perhaps sometimes we look at some people and we say, wow, God can certainly save that person. They're pretty good. They're pretty moral. God wants them. And then we look at these other people and we say, boy, they're messed up. I mean, you want to talk about broken. They make broken look good. These people are a mess. God can't save them. I mean, I know he says he can, but he really can't. The answer is, yes, he can. And perhaps even you might be saying, listen, pastor, you don't know my life. You don't know the deep, dark secrets that are there. You don't understand. God can't fix this. It's too broken. It's too lost. It's too sinful. Understand something. God is one. And that means he can. There is nothing too hard for God. And his salvation is open to all people. Means it's open to you. And to all around you. That's the great news of the gospel. It's not some select secret club. It's not some special super good people. It's a whole bunch of broken people. Totally depraved. Who have come to God in faith. And you can too. Change in our lives and change in our society can only happen through the righteousness of God. And the only way that the righteousness of God comes is through the gospel. And so the gospel is the only answer. As our community questions all that is happening, as our kids question what is going on, we must respond with the gospel. Perhaps this week you've had conversations with neighbors and co-workers as they looked around and said, what in the world is going on? You have the answer. You don't know what's going on? Let's take a look at the book of Romans. Romans 1 said this was going to happen. Look at this. We're broken. We're sinners. We've got a problem. But look at Romans 3. God's righteousness is available. There is a solution. We hold the answer. Are we going to believe it? Are we going to share it? This raises the question. Have you entered a relationship with God through faith? Or are you relying on something else? And if you have, are you living in light of that salvation? Are you living in light of that faith? 
Or is there really no difference between you and everyone else? So with that in mind, let me give you three things as we walk away this morning that you need to think about. Three so what's. Number one, recognize the glorious news of Christ's sacrificial death. It's very easy to become frustrated with the world around us. It is very easy to become frustrated with our own lives. We need to recognize this glorious news that Christ took it all on himself. You don't have to fix it. Christ did. Recognize the glorious news of Christ's sacrificial death. And when you do, number two, come to God in faith and submit to Christ as your Lord. Over the next several chapters, Paul is going to lay open exactly what these verses look like and what they mean. And in chapter 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Submit your life to him. Come to him in faith. And when you do, Number three, live out of gratefulness for your salvation. You need to live it out, live differently, live with the hope that is in you. In chapter 12, we're told that therefore, because of this incredible salvation, we are to not live like the world, but live in a completely different way. Paul asks us in another book, he says that we need to be ready to give an answer to those who inquire about the hope that is in us. And if often we read that and say, no one's inquiring of the hope that's in me. And it might just be that no one's requiring it because you're not really displaying it. Like everyone else, you watch the news, you follow social media and you start wringing your hands and woe is me and the world is broken and what am I going to do? And oh, we need to and we respond with anger or frustration or bitterness and not hope. And so no one's inquiring about hope because they don't see it at all. But when you, when you respond differently, when you respond according to the gospel and you live in light of God's grace, they, they inquire, okay, you're different. What, what's, what's going on? And the answer is the gospel. To summarize it in one question this morning, it's this. Do you really believe the gospel? Father, we do not deserve the grace that you have given to us. Lord, we, as we've seen, we are so hopelessly broken. There is nothing good in us that we can do. And yet, in your incredible righteousness and grace, you declared us righteous. You redeemed us and bought us out of the slavery of sin. You sacrificed your son to appease your righteous wrath against our sin so that you could both be just and still justify us. Well, this is incredible news. Help us to believe it. Well, I can't help but believe that in a group this size, there are some who have not yet placed their faith and trust in you. Lord, I ask that your spirit would convict them of this incredible truth. That he would not allow them to sleep. That he would draw them to you and to salvation. That they might experience the true joy that you grant to your children. Thank you for who you are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.